come again this Lord's Day to consider our topic, the God of all comforts. Christ has promised us another Comforter, the Holy Ghost, who will dwell within all the Lord's people. The Comforter gives us life and sustains that life on account of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Christ reiterates the coming persecution of His people. The cause is that the wicked have not known Christ or the Father. Christ tells us that He gives this warning so that when it happens, we will recall that He told us so. Christ explains that He didn't tell His disciples these things earlier because He was then with them. Now He is dying and ascending to glory so they will be without His personal, tangible, physical presence and comfort and protection. Because Christ was protected from death during His ministry, for His hour had not yet come, Therefore, the physical presence of Jesus shielded His people and comforted them during His earthly ministry. No matter what people said about Him, Jesus was there, and that was what mattered to them. But when Christ dies and rises again and ascends to glory, a different condition will prevail. They will lose their comfort zone they had with Jesus there with them. They will lose their conception of safety and the stability of a physical kingdom which is delayed until Christ's return. What they receive in exchange for this loss is far better. Salvation by the death of Christ, a perfect priest before God, peace with God, and everlasting life. But Christ promises them something that He knows is better than His continued physical presence with them, and that is the presence of the Comforter, the Holy Ghost of promise. Recall that the spiritual river of life Christ promised was to be by the Holy Ghost, who had not yet come because Christ was not yet glorified. That the spiritual life should dwell in them by the Comforter is far better than Christ's physical presence with them during His ministry. Christ is anticipating as well an innumerable host of saints in this world after He dies and ascends to glory. And His physical presence would not be of nearly the help to us as would be the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. That's because Christ's body as a man is not omnipresent and could not be with all of His people the world over at the same time. But the Comforter, when He comes, is with all the saints simultaneously because He is the Spirit of God and is not bound by a physical body. So Christ is telling us that it is expedient that He die and ascend to glory so that the Comforter can dwell within all the Lord's people all the time. But more importantly, there is this. The Comforter could not comfort us except the Son first die to save us. Without the completion of Christ's sacrifice at Calvary, the Comforter has no comfort to give us. But when Christ went away in death and resurrection and glory, His work on earth is complete, our salvation is finished, and the Comforter comforts us by applying Christ's work to each of us The Comforter conveys to us the truth about Jesus and what His death does for us. The Comforter confirms in our hearts and minds the reality of what Christ has accomplished in saving us. The work of Christ on the cross and in glory as our high priest is far better than His staying on earth and teaching and doing miracles but never dying to save us. The Comforter would have no comforting work to do 
before the sacrifice was perfected, there would be no real peace with God, no final and full sense of forgiveness, no spirit of adoption to knit us to our God. The irony is that almost all the hatred of Christ and persecution of believers is also on account of the death of Christ. Had He not died for us, none would trust in Him, none would follow Him or believe in Him, We would have no hope, just like the lost world has no hope. The world's persecution would have come to an end because no one would have followed Him. Because of Christ's death, the world keeps on hating Him and His people. But we are saved and blessed and promised everlasting life. Christ here explains at least a part of this reality for His people about the importance of His going away and the Comforter's coming to us. By this explanation by Christ, the crucial work of the Comforter becomes more apparent and understandable to us. Now this Lord's Day, we proceed further in John 16 to discuss this point that the Comforter reproves the world. And we read this in John 16 at verse 7 where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And when He is come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father and ye see Me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. Now the Comforter, you see, will reprove the world when He comes, the Lord Jesus promises. Mostly speaking of the convicting power of the Holy Ghost in the lost, either directly by His work in them, but also through the preached Word by believers. The Holy Ghost uses the preaching of the Word as the substance of how he goes about convicting the world, convicting lost people, reproving the world. Now some false teachers claim that we have no need of the Holy Ghost working a direct work in the hearts of lost people to cause them to believe because everybody can do that of their own free will. And so the Holy Ghost is basically just twiddling His thumbs waiting for people to trust in Jesus so that He can move in and direct them going forward. But that's not what Christ is teaching here at all. He's teaching that the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, reproves the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Everybody, every man is a sinner, so every man needs to be reproved of sin. Every man needs to be reproved of righteousness because righteousness is required of sinners and they cannot attain unto it, can they? And every man needs reproof of judgment because man will be judged if he have not the righteousness and if he is still charged with his sin. So here is why it is that the Comforter has this remit to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus goes on to expand each one of these three areas of reproof. Of sin because they believe not on Me. 
This is consistent with what Christ taught earlier in His ministry. You remember in John chapter 3, He said, He that believeth on Me is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now Jesus isn't teaching here that the only sin people are punished for is the sin of unbelief. A lot of people say that. It's a glib statement. But no, the Bible teaches that men are judged and punished for their sin, not just the sin of unbelief. But Christ is undermining the fact that unbelief is a very crucial sin. Because by that sin, there's no forgiveness. There's no salvation. There's no everlasting life. And by that sin, men stand condemned for all of their sin, not just the sin of unbelief. Some people even say that nobody goes to hell for any sin except the sin of unbelief. It is true that belief in Christ is necessary for salvation, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't follow that that's the only sin that men are judged for. And so Christ says that the Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on Me. So there is this sin of unbelief. And this sin is particularly atrocious because of all the signs and wonders and miracles that Christ did and because He rose from the grave and because it was well proved before many witnesses that He was who He said He was and that He offered salvation to whoever would believe on Him. So there is a particular sin in unbelief because they wouldn't believe on Christ. Now, if you don't believe what doctors tell you or that fluoride will help your teeth be better or that the Russians tried to steal the election or that Vladimir Putin isn't the evil that people say he is, whatever thing you might not believe in, none of them have the impact of refusing to believe in the Lord Jesus. Because there is an important truth that must be embraced by sinful men if they're to have any hope of being saved. They must believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is appropriate that the Holy Ghost should reprove men of unbelief. That means that people know that their refusal to believe is a sin. Why? Because the Holy Ghost reproves them for it. And because their refusal to believe is particularly noxious given the work and sacrifice of Christ on the cross for sinners. They also refuse to believe in the resurrection, which validates what Christ said and who He claimed to be. But then the Holy Ghost rebukes and reproves the world of all their sin, not just the sin of unbelief. And the point is that their sin remains unforgiven and therefore subject to rebuke because they refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus. So it's like a chicken and the egg situation. Because they won't believe on Christ, they're still dead in their sin. And therefore they're reproved by the Holy Ghost because of their sin and because they won't believe on the Lord Jesus who would take away their sin. They refuse to believe in His resurrection. They refuse to believe in Christ's sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And therefore, they are reproved because they do not believe in Christ. 
And notice that the Holy Ghost's work as the Comforter reproving the world all happens after the cross, after the sacrifice, after the resurrection, after the exaltation. Here is very good field for the Holy Ghost to plow, you see. He's got a meaty, factual, well-grounded argument that he makes in his rebuke of the wicked men who won't believe. Now, Brother Gill had this to say about this particular aspect of the Comforter's rebuke. Of sin because they believe not on me. The sin here primarily intended is that of the Jews in disbelieving, rejecting, and crucifying Christ in which the Spirit of God by Peter charged upon them on the day of Pentecost and fully proved against them, gave such clear evidence and wrought such strong convictions of their minds and consciences that being pricked to the heart, they cried out, What shall we do? This is seen in Acts chapter 2. This passage also applies to the ordinary work of the Spirit of God upon the souls of men through the ministry of the Word. So it includes convictions of sins of all sorts and particularly the sin of unbelief. But the Spirit of God convinces of the sinfulness and corruption of nature, the wickedness and plague of a man's heart, the sin that dwells in him, how that has overspread all the powers and faculties of his soul, rendered both him and his services unacceptable to God, loathsome in his sight, and the sinner himself hopeless and helpless, and deserving of God's wrath and displeasure. This is what the Holy Ghost reproves man of. He also convinces of actual sins and transgressions, showing that they are breaches of the law of God and are committed against God Himself, that they are deserving of death, even eternal death, that the wrath of God is revealed against them and for them comes upon the children of disobedience, and that there is no atonement for them or cleansing from them but by the blood of Christ. He especially convinces of the sin of unbelief, showing the evil nature and consequences of it to persons who have heard the gospel that such who disbelieve the Messiah shall die in their sins that whoever believes not in Him shall be damned, and that faith in Christ is necessary to salvation, and that without it there is no salvation. Now the gospel cure for the sin is set before the world, and the Holy Ghost confronts sinners with the hopelessness of their sin because they will not believe on the Lord Jesus. The Holy Ghost reproves them for their sin still charged against them. Still charged against them because they don't believe in Jesus and they don't believe in His sacrifice. The Comforter reproves the world of righteousness, Jesus says, because Christ goes to the Father and ye see Me no more. There is a righteousness required which Jesus preached. You remember in Psalm 40, which we read by Providence this morning, it goes on and on about how Christ was faithful to preach righteousness to the congregation. You remember it said, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not restrained my lips. O Lord, thou knowest I have not hidden the righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. So Christ in His ministry was faithful to proclaim righteousness. 
and to proclaim the need of righteousness and the lack of righteousness in the hearts of the people who were listening to him. You remember he warned his hearers, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there was a preaching of righteousness, an acting out of righteousness, a demonstration of righteousness by Christ in His perfection and obedience to the Father. There was also a warning that you're dead and lost in your sin, that your righteousness is no good. Your own self-righteousness is no good. And your only hope is to trust in Me. I will deliver you from the wages of sin. I will deliver you from the just wrath of the God of glory. If you'll trust in Me, I will promise you everlasting life. But now you see, the Lord Jesus has departed. That's what Jesus is talking about after He departs. And the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, reproves the world of righteousness. Why? What does He say? Because I have ascended, because I have left, because I have departed from you and you see Me no more. He's departed, and so the Comforter takes up His ministry, you see, of warning about righteousness and the lack thereof, and preaching the righteousness of Christ and its requirement, and how none has it of his own self. Here is where the Holy Ghost takes up, as it were, the ministry of Christ, again, as we've mentioned earlier times, that because Christ is no longer here to declare His righteousness and to warn the people of their unrighteousness and of their need for a Savior, now the Holy Ghost reproves the world of righteousness. It preaches the perfect righteousness of Jesus, how it is proved by His glory with the Father and necessary for poor sinners and vindicated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Now here is another aspect of the Holy Ghost reproving for righteousness because Christ has ascended and is no longer with them. And that is that while Jesus was here, there were the wicked false accusers who claimed He was not righteous, that He was a sinner. And they traduced His perfection and obedience to God. They falsely accused Jesus of sin. In fact, they condemned Him to death because of their false accusation that He had sinned at His trial. We read this morning from Mark chapter 14 at verse 60 where this travesty of injustice took place. You remember they had arrested Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and they had hauled Him before the court that was run by the high priests and the scribes. And in Mark 14 at verse 60 we read, And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Now this was in keeping with the law, for no accurate charge had been laid against him. They had no witnesses. There was no case to answer. You're entitled to stand mute if the government can't provide any proof whatsoever that you've broken the law. And so Christ wasn't required to answer. Again, the high priest asked and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, this was something Christ was required by the law to answer. If you're asked on oath to answer a question truthfully, you're bound to do so. You can't stand mute. 
That's what the law teaches. And so Christ finally answers. Jesus said, I am. That is, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. That means I am the Messiah. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am the one promised to come into this world to save the people and to set up a kingdom and to rule for all eternity. And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need ye any further witness? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. You see, they falsely accused Jesus of sin. And then they had him put to death on that false accusation. And so Christ is foretelling that when Christ is exalted and glorified, all their lies about Him have been exposed. And this is true. At the crucifixion, at the resurrection, at the ascension, the Lord disposed of all the lies and the falsehoods used to condemn Him to death. And it was well known. So the Comforter, you see, reproves the world of righteousness because with Christ glorified, the case for the requirement of righteousness for sinners and their complete inability of righteousness and their false accusations and murder of the righteous one, all of those give the Comforter a powerful rebuke to make against lost and sinful men. They accused Christ of unrighteousness, but the Holy Ghost rebukes them for that because Christ's righteousness is now fully and completely established by the glorification of Christ. Now there is a powerful example of the Holy Ghost rebuking wicked men based upon Christ's promise here, and it's found in Acts 7. You notice that Christ promised, contrary to their false accusation of His crime, that He is Messiah and that one day you would see Him seated at the right hand of glory and coming in the clouds. So Christ had already laid the groundwork that the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of God would be the ultimate proof against the false crime that they had accused Him of. In the end, you'll see that I'm right and you're wrong. But it'll be a very devastating thing because you'll see me in great power and glory thereby disproving your claim that I'm unrighteous and that I've lied and that I've blasphemed by answering you truthfully that I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. This is revealed by the Holy Ghost to the martyr Stephen as an answer to their objection to his preaching. Notice what it says in Acts 7 at verse 51. This is Stephen winding up his sermon. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always, notice, resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. So see, here is an example of the Holy Ghost rebuking these people through the mouth of Stephen of sin. But he goes on, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Here is a, a sterling example of the Holy Ghost rebuking the world of sin because they would not believe 
on the Lord Jesus and rebuking the world of righteousness because they would not believe what Christ taught about righteousness. And now He's gone to the Father, is exalted at the right hand of God, which the Holy Ghost will soon point out to Stephen and he will repeat it to the wicked people. Stephen, you see, establishes their unrighteousness and offense against God and His Messiah. And so at verse 54, their response is, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on Him with their teeth. Notice the rebuke of the Holy Ghost through the preaching of Stephen had an effect on their hearts on the inside. They didn't just ignore it. They just didn't laugh it off. No, they were cut to the heart by it. And here's an example of the working of the Holy Ghost in the hearts of wicked men to rebuke them for sin and for righteousness. And it says then that Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, verse 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now notice that this is a direct fulfillment and confirmation of what Christ promised at His trial. That one day they would see Him there. Well, here Stephen sees Him there. And notice it's revealed to Stephen by the Holy Ghost. And Stephen then transmits this proof to them. He reproves, the Holy Ghost reproves the world of righteousness because Christ is gone and has been glorified in heaven. And you see Him no more. Note the testimony of the Holy Ghost through Stephen. He rebukes them for righteousness because Christ is ascended on high and therefore Christ's promise at His trial is fulfilled and testified to by the Holy Ghost to Stephen and to the wicked people. And their response is seen at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Him with one accord and cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now have you noticed this response? shows us that the Comforter's reproof doesn't always lead to salvation, does it? Sometimes it leads to condemnation. It exposes the wickedness of the hearts of wicked people. It doesn't always lead to salvation. Oftentimes it leads to the ultimate destruction and judgment of the wicked. But the conviction of men by the Holy Ghost's work is always there. It either alienates men further from the gospel or it draws men unto the Savior. It cannot be without effect. And it works in all the world in ways in which we cannot see. As Jesus said, it's like the wind that comes and goes and we have no control over it. We can't predict what it's going to do or where it's going to happen. But it happens nonetheless because Christ promised that the Comforter would reprove the world must be fulfilled. It cannot just be some idle talk that Jesus tossed out there to comfort His people. No doubt this instance was used even though it led to the martyrdom of Stephen, even though it no doubt sealed a host of men in their lost state and in their doom in hell forever. But notice that this instance was used by the Holy Ghost to convert Paul to the Savior. 
Because later on, Paul was converted, wasn't he? And no doubt this incident had a profound effect upon him. In fact, it drove him for a time to greater sin before God so that his salvation, when it came, could be a greater glory to God and a marvelous showing of the mighty power of God in the hearts of people whom he will redeem. The Comforter reproves of judgment because the prince of this world is judged, the Lord Jesus says, the third way in which the Holy Ghost reproves the world, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now Christ has been appointed to judge the world because He is our righteousness and He has taken away the sins of His people and He has destroyed the devil and judged him. You remember in John 5, the Lord Jesus told these wicked people that He was appointed by the Father to be the judge of the world, that it was appropriate because He is the Son of Man. God intended that wicked men should be judged by a man, Christ Jesus, made in our likeness, and yet God a very God, that it was appropriate that it should be that way, that their judgment or their salvation might be tangibly seen in the person of a real bodily man. That is our Savior. That is our Prince. That is our Judge, the Lord Jesus. If Satan himself is judged, which Jesus says, the prince of this world is judged, then the fountainhead of all rebellion against God has been judged. And that's what Christ is saying. The Holy Ghost will rebuke and reprove the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. If the fountainhead of all rebellion against God, the devil, has been judged, how can poor, wicked, sinful men escape that judgment? You see, not only is the head of the sin judged, but so are all the wicked, disobedient followers who, number one, won't believe, and therefore they have their sin. And number two, don't have righteousness because Christ has been vindicated as the only righteousness as He's been exalted to heaven. Now at the end, they'll be judged because the devil has been judged. And so the Holy Ghost reproves by urging the judgment to come upon all sinners. You see, in the end, the devil loses. And the Holy Ghost imposes that truth upon the hearts of sinful men that one day they too will lose. The wrath of God is revealed to all men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Paul said in Romans chapter 1. And so this is done in part by the work of the Holy Ghost by a direct work, and then also by the preaching of God's Word. For the Holy Ghost uses the preaching of God's Word also as a means to impress these reproofs upon the world. But how is Satan judged? He's judged by the man Christ Jesus who took on our human flesh and being slain, destroyed sin and death in his body and overcame and defeated them for his people. This is what the Scriptures tell us. In Hebrews chapter 2, we find this set forth very clearly at verse 14. For as much then as the children whom God would save are partakers of flesh and blood. In other words, we're human beings. Christ also Himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So here is 
the judgment of the prince of this world, which is the placeholder, if you will, or the sign of the judgment of all the wicked people who won't trust in Christ and who will be found without the righteousness of Christ. Christ's death and Satan's destruction by Christ's death is a strong rebuke to all who follow after Satan in their sin, the judgment of sin in Christ and against Satan are a powerful proof of the judgment of sinners themselves. For all sin will be judged. The Scriptures teach us that the wages of sin is death, that all sin must be judged, either in the Lord Jesus for His people on the cross, or in every sinner who refuses the Lord Jesus in exchange for loyalty to the prince of this world who has already been overthrown at Calvary and at the resurrection from the tomb. So there is a basis, a strong basis for the Comforter to rebuke the world for judgment because the devil has already been judged and so will they unless they repent and believe and the Lord Jesus take away their sin and lay upon them His righteousness. Finally, I wonder if you've noticed that the Comforter doesn't rebuke the Lord's people in exactly the same way, does He? Well, I know for He doesn't rebuke us for sin in the way in which He rebukes the world. Why? Because we have believed on Jesus. The Holy Ghost has given us faith to believe on Jesus. And the Comforter preaches pardon and forgiveness to us. He preaches peace and the love of God to us. We were sinners. We still sin. But He need not rebuke us for sin because we do not believe on Christ because we have believed on Christ and therefore God has taken away our sin and declared us righteous for Jesus' sake. And the Comforter doesn't rebuke us of righteousness because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us since we believed. And Christ's ascension to the throne of glory assures us that we are accepted in the Beloved. As Paul puts it, indeed, we are seated with Him already in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see, the righteousness that the world is rebuked over, the Holy Ghost assures us in our hearts and minds that we have that righteousness through Jesus Christ. And it is because He has left and ascended the glory that we are sure that we are in possession of that righteousness which is necessary. And finally, the Comforter doesn't rebuke us for judgment because the devil is defeated. <laughs> That's a good thing from our point of view. The devil is defeated. Not because we still follow him like the world does, but Jesus has already been judged for us in our place for our crimes. And we are set free. So you see, the rebuke of the world mirrors the rejoicing or the comfort of the Comforter for the Lord's people on those very same three points and for the very reasons which Christ gives that the world must be rebuked, the Lord's people must be encouraged and strengthened and made to rejoice. And around this table, that's what we remember is the means by which and the time in which and the place at which Christ accomplished our redemption, took away our sin, gave us an everlasting righteousness, 
and gave us the Comforter to comfort us even as He rebukes the world. And as we see Him rebuking the world, you see, we can see the comfort that that is to us for the very same reasons, but the difference being that Christ has saved us and the wicked have rejected Him. And therefore, all the things that are of comfort to us in one sense are a rebuke to them. And that also informs us a little bit how we ought to proclaim salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And at the Lord's table, we remember how His very body and blood took away our sin and saved us. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. We glory in it and we long to see the face of our Redeemer. One day we'll see Him. We'll see the wounds in His hands, His feet in His side, and across His brow where the crown of thorns were pressed. You remember what the songwriter said, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Well, let's celebrate the Lord's table and let's have Brother Whitten give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And Scripture tells us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sins. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in Your Lamb that was slain for us slain for us from before the foundation of the world, but then slain in space and time and put to death on Calvary's tree by the hands of wicked men, but at Your direction and determination that He might be made a sacrifice for our sins, that You might lay upon Him our crimes and punish Him for our sins so that we might go free. And we thank You that He shed that precious blood for Your Word had said without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Christ's blood must be shed to make an atonement for us, to be a propitiation through His blood that we might trust in it, lay hold upon it, be cleansed by it, and saved forevermore from our sin. We thank You that He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that You did not restrain the hands of wicked men but rather You delivered Him up for us because You loved us and You would have us saved and You would have Your promised new covenant executed in the blood in the death of the testator that we might enter into all the promises of the inheritance. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, glory, joy, eternal life. We thank You for this cup that Christ ordained to be a reminder, a symbol, a witness to us to recall to our minds that precious blood that was shed for us. We thank You that there's no more offering for animal sacrifices. There's no more offering for the sacrifice of Christ. It's once and for all accomplished our redemption and perfected us by His death. And we give You the praise that Your Spirit has worked in our hearts that calls us to trust in Jesus, giving us faith to believe. For by our own faith, we could never believe. And our own faith would be too foolish and wicked. 
and too selfish and all the problems of the hearts and minds of wicked people would muddy it and tarnish it and destroy it and overthrow it. But we thank You that the faith You give us to believe by is strong because You uphold it, You strengthen it, You guard it because it is worth more than silver and gold, as Paul said. And we thank You for the blood symbolized in this cup, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 43 in the black book to a tune that we know better than this one. By faith I look where Christ has gone and see upon His Father's throne a man with glory crowned. His brow is marred and on His side whence flowed the cleansing crimson tide. The marks of love are found. Number 43.